Well, our text is the New Testament lesson from Philippians chapter 2. It's a text which is historically uh, a companion reading, a companion reading to the well-known gospel text about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which I just read. Now, the main point of the standard Palm Sunday gospel lesson is quite clear, and I'm sure most of you have heard it many times. Right? It is that Jesus comes as a lowly king. He comes on a donkey, not on a war horse. He comes in weakness, right? He comes to suffer. He comes to die. He comes not, as many of his contemporaries would have wanted, to conquer and militarily overthrow the Romans. So a triumphal entry it is, but it's kind of an a-triumphal, triumphal entry. Right? It's an entry with this deeply ironic, upside-down quality. And what our text from Philippians does is it roots the actions of our Lord on Palm Sunday. It roots them in the eternal being of God. Which is why this passage can be considered a continuation on our series about God himself. Right? What I'm calling here the humility of God. In addition to that, so in addition to rooting, you you, you know, we all know the Palm Sunday story. We know what Jesus did. We know the donkey. We know the whole whole narrative. The Philippians text tells you where that narrative begins. And in addition to doing that, it drives home the example of Jesus on Palm Sunday and through into his passion, it drives that home as the pattern of life to which we are called. So we'll look at the passage under two headings, the plea and the pattern. The outline is there in your bulletin on page five. Um, The plea and the pattern. So first, then the plea. So this is Philippians chapter two. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, Paul says, these things These things are gifts of the triune God to the church. Encouragement, comfort, sharing in the gifts of the Spirit. And they exist in some measure in any reasonably well-ordered Christian community. But here Paul's seeking to, to see these gifts deepened and extended. He continues, if there's any affection, or in some translations tenderness, and sympathy... Or compassion. These these are probably to be thought of as root and fruit, like affection, affection, inward warmth, tenderness is the root, and it is to manifest itself in these outward acts of sympathy, suffering with the other as the fruit. And so, right at the outset of this text, we're keyed into a kind of different universe than the one we tend to think about when we think about church unity. Like, unity involves, then, not only confession of the same faith, it involves your emotional life. It has to reach down to the roots of your affections. Right? Paul doesn't just say, look, try and get along with each other. Stop carping and sniping and all that. He's going down in to the interior, mysterious inner reaches of the human person. Unity depends then critically on our capacity 
to enter into the life of other people. Right? To be fully present with them. To see the world from inside their plight. To make room for them. Unity depends on having an interior Catholicity, a wideness of soul, which can embrace the other. Unity is visceral for Paul. If these things exist among you, he says, and they do exist in part, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. I've always thought this is a marvelous glimpse into the heart of the apostle. Remember, when Paul writes this, he's chained and he's imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. The threat of execution is hanging over his head. And he says his full and complete joy can be secured by one, just one of his churches standing in unity and brotherly affection. I don't think that works its way up on our priority of things as we're facing execution. Yes, I'm imprisoned. I'm about to be killed. But this is how much I esteem brotherly affection and love and unity in just one church. Have the same mind, he says, by which he does not mean that everybody thinks exactly the same way or that we all have the same sets of convictions though he does assume a certain gospel core unity. His point here, when he says have the same mind, is have the same frame of mind, the same mindset. This comes out in the other phrases in verse 2 where he says we're to have the same love. The same love of God, the same impartial love of the brethren. Thus, Paul says, be in full accord, be of one in spirit, one in purpose. It's a marvelous vision that he paints very quickly here of what unity in the church looks like in a lived-out congregation. It can almost seem idealistic or impossible. How would it be achieved, actually? You can see that in verse 3. How is it achieved and maintained? Do nothing. From selfish ambition or vain conceit. Put simply, right? Selfishness and vanity destroy unity because they display a corrupt frame of mind. These are the th- in our circles we tend to think wrongly that all or most disunity is called by doc- caused by doctrinal error. Well, they teach this and I teach that, and they teach this and I think that, and so we divide it into two different churches or whatever. But if you actually look at real church divisions, it turns out that rivalry and factions and selfishness and conceit, cults of personality, a profound lack of charity, these things are always looming large. It's not how we narrate the division. We narrate the division that we were the noble defenders of truth and they were the the, the ignoble defectors from the truth. That's not how Paul narrates division. What he sees is an astounding lack of order and proportion which facilitates vanity and selfishness. We are to do nothing, he says, nothing from selfishness. 
but rather we're to act in and out of humility. This would go a long way to heal the body of Christ. John Chrysostom, the the great 5th century bishop of Constantinople, one of the great preachers in the early church, he said, there is nothing so foreign to a Christian as arrogance. Nothing so foreign. I mean, sometimes I think there's nothing so predictable to a Christian as arrogance. It's completely foreign. You know, arrogance in a Christian is a form of lunacy. It's a form of complete insanity. Humility, then, is just simply sanity. Right? When we talk about humility, we're not talking about something that's feigned or groveling. It's not sanctimonious. It's not some pathetic lack of dignity. Humility is a mark of moral clarity. It's poverty of spirit. It's meekness. It's simply a sober acknowledgement of one's weaknesses. Pascal, right, the, the French mathematician and philosopher, Christian, Pascal famously said, what amazes me mo- the most is to see that everyone is not amazed at his weakness. It's amazing. We're, we're, we're astonished at other people's foibles and weaknesses. But Pascal says the amazing thing is that everyone's not amazed at their own weaknesses. So humility is a true assessment of ourselves. And that alone is the fount that results in a charitable assessment of others. In humility, Paul goes on to say, count others as better than yourself. Right? Almost nobody does this. Right? Count others as better than yourself. Of course, we're all equally significant. We're all made in the image of God. Paul doesn't mean anything crazy like that. But in actual situations, right, in actual encounters, we have to decide whose concerns and interests are to be given priority. Right? Whether it's a crisis or a conversation over a cup of coffee. Treat the other person as more important than yourself. There's an old rhyme that says, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. Put your concerns last. And you have to start doing that in these little incidental encounters. It doesn't mean you don't have concerns. The text indicates we do have concerns. We have to look after them. But where there's a conflict, we have to cultivate the instinct to let the other win. It is a noble thing to lose all these little human turf wars that go on in life. And there can be no deep, Paul says, no lasting unity without this other-oriented humility. And unity in the church, unity in the church, Calvin says, is the chief indicator of its prosperous condition. I mean, there are lots of churches, right, which all confess the same doctrine. But they're a debacle in their interior life and relationships. Unity is the chief indicator of the church's prosperity. That's Paul's passionate plea to us, to the church. And the second point is the pattern. He connects this then to Christ and to what we, would, what we know of as Palm Sunday. 
Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He hasn't changed topics here. Your attitude, your disposition should be the same as Christ Jesus. Right? If we want divisions overcome, or we don't see them being overcome, it's because we lack this mind. So, what is on display for us on Palm Sunday, in the entry of our Lord Jesus into Jerusalem, is just this attitude that Paul's calling for. Just this mindset. He is entering the last phase of his self-emptying. He rejects the way of the zealots. He will not call for or lead a movement to overthrow the Romans by force. And yet he's no Roman collaborator. Right? In the end, Jesus is more subversive than all the zealots and all the agitators combined. This is a new form of kingship. I know we say that a lot around here. We're used to this. But it really is. It's a revolutionary way of being revolutionary. Jesus is waging peace. And here, Paul traces it back for us all the way into his eternal pre-existence with the Father. That's what's going on in this passage, which is why it's so marvelous. So you have a text, right, which has been down in the dirt. The the nitty-gritty stuff of living together in unity. And from there, Paul ascends, and he roots his exhortation in the very life of God. High theology is highly practical. This is why we should live a life of self-sacrificial love. Why? Paul's telling us why. Because Christ did it. Verse 6. This is the one who, being in very nature, some translations say, though he was in the form of God. So the text asserts, this is very unusual language, but it's clear that Paul's asserting that Jesus was fully God. He was equal with God. Who being in very nature? Now, we need to ask a question. Who is the who here that was in the form of God? Now, we would tend to say Jesus. That's fine. It's not quite right. (laughs) Or at least it needs some clarifying. Because since Jesus is his human name, giving upon becoming flesh... Right? And here we have receded back into the eternal being of God prior to the incarnation. Right? The man Jesus could not humble himself to become the man Jesus. The who of verse 6 is the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who is of the same essence or substance with the Father. Right? Who is God of God, light of light, the God we've been examining, who is infinite and eternal and unchangeable, that one. That divine person, that's the who, who though he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's really quite shocking. We are graspers, if nothing else, right? Human beings are graspers. God is a non-grasping God. We're always angling, (laughs) leveraging, calculating, He did not consider his equality, his deity. We got all this lesser stuff that we're always grasping. 
grasping this and defending that and protecting. This one was God and didn't consider his godness a thing to be held on to. Something to be employed or exploited for selfish ends. Any assertion of his rights, and these are his equal rights, his due rights, he refused to grasp. All we do is talk about our rights. This one is God and refuses to grasp or assert his rights as God. This laying down of one's rights, this refusal to assert one's dignity and equality has its roots. Now get this, not first in the historical Jesus. Not first in the baby born in the infant. Or in the one riding the the donkey into Jerusalem. Paul traces what I am calling here the humility or the lowliness of God. He traces it back up into the disposition, the attitude, the mindset of the Son. God of God, light of light of the Son in eternity before the incarnation. Humility is an attribute of God. Lowliness, non-grasping. That's an attribute of the triune God. Now, we see it on display in Jesus, but we often think, well, humility just applies to Jesus. It doesn't actually apply to God proper. Paul's trying to disabuse us of this. He was in the form of God, and as the eternal God exercises the humility of the eternal Son and does not consider his own deity a thing to be grasped. And when this Christ appears in the Gospels and he speaks of his inner nature, right, his heart, Right? When someone tells you what's in their heart, you pay attention. Right? If someone says, I want to talk to you about my heart, it's a sign that they're in earnest. Right? They're going, to, they're going to disclose something to you. Do you know that Jesus only talks about his heart one time? He, he actually says, I'm going to tell you what's in my heart. He does that one time. You know what he says? I am meek and lowly of heart. And that meekness is not some foreign element, some strange feature he just took up at the incarnation. It is who he was as the Son of God in the life of the Trinity before the worlds began. You know why Chrysostom said arrogance, there's nothing so foreign to the Christian as arrogance? Because arrogance is foreign to God. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But on the contrary, Paul says, what does he do? Verse 7, he made himself nothing. Literally, the phrase is he emptied himself. And it's a contested phrase in the history of the church, especially in the 20th century. But it doesn't mean he emptied himself of his divinity. It means he took the form of a servant, the text says, being made in human likeness. So it's a kind of emptying by taking. Taking the nature of a servant, literally the text means a slave. So he, get this, our God manifested his deity as a slave. 
I mean, think about this. Imagine if you could erase your historical memory and have a parade of Christians come, come and talk to you about their God right, in, his, in his actual being. From which of them would you deduce that this God, when he manifests himself, must come as a powerless slave? He manifests himself. So the form of God, get this, and the form of a slave were apparently perfectly compatible for our God because of his non-grasping, non-striving humility. It's an astonishing thing, really. What is the icon of the Holy Trinity in human history? Nothing. A servant. A slave. See, here we're at the heart of the wonder of the gospel. And it shouldn't be lost on us, right, that the kind of God we serve, the lowly God, the meek and the humble one, takes on the form of a slave. Right? This is a God, let's put it this way, this is a God whose fullness of glory can be manifested by making himself nothing. This is a God whose very godness can be expressed in stooping to become a slave. Lo, within a manger lies he who built the starry skies. He would be found, Paul says, found, verse 8 says, in appearance like any other man. That's just a carpenter from Nazareth, the son of Mary. But he has traversed this distance, a thing we have no categories to capture. We, we mentioned this last week in Sunday school. Even using the word distance shows the poverty of our concepts here because we can only measure distance between creatures. Right? If a man were to become, say, a dog, or an insect. That would not even begin. In fact, it would infinitely fall short of describing this emptying. This is why the the doctrine of God, which we're looking at in this series, is so important. It's that God, the God for whom there are no categories, the inaccessible, incomprehensible God, the all-glorious God, transcendent over time and space, incomparable, in need of nothing, for whom the sprawling cosmos and all the nations are less than nothing. It's that one who becomes man. Luther says, He whom the worlds could not unwrap, yonder lies in Mary's lap. If you look at hymn number 219 in the hymnal, All praise to the eternal Lord. There's a verse in there. I'm not sure if it's in the English version, but it's also a Luther hymn, which says, Once did the skies before thee bow. A virgin's arms contain thee now. That's the descent. That's the eternal humility of the Son of God. That's the lowliness of Jesus Christ. And you know what? Having made that descent... He's far from finished. He further humbles or empties himself, Paul says, voluntarily subjecting himself to death. Kierkegaard says Christ humbled himself. He was not humbled. And this is sublime. For there was none in heaven or on earth or in the abyss, Kierkegaard says, who could humble him. 
This one comes willingly, freely. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. So he humbles himself even further, even deeper, becoming obedient to the point of death. And although it's lost all shock value for us, when Paul adds even death on a cross, it's intended to shock. Because crucifixion, the Jewish historian Josephus said, is the most wretched of all deaths. If you want a brutal, brutal description of what Roman crucifixion was, you can get Martin Hengel's little 70-page book, Crucifixion. Read it. It's gut-wrenching stuff. And in the Roman Empire, this form of death was reserved for the vilest of criminals, for slaves, for enemies of the state, insurrectionists. Polite Roman society would avoid even speaking of it. Cicero said a Roman citizen should not even use the word cross. Even death on a cross should provoke revulsion. And the result of this self-emptying unto execution comes in verses 9 through 11. Therefore, meaning because of this self-emptying humility, therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, Every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. There will be a universal confession, a universal submission, a universal acknowledgement of what has happened in Jesus Christ. Even unbelievers will make the confession. No one will fail to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. The 6th century pagan emperor Julian, when he was dying, was alleged to have said, Thou hast conquered, O Galilean. Julian was an apostate, and he was expressing his recognition that Christ ultimately will be acknowledged as Lord and King, not him. The whole host of all who have ever lived will make this confession, either in triumph or joy or in despair, as Julian made it. Because the humility and the lowliness of God is a triumphant and victorious humility. It's a weakness which is stronger than men. This divine humility is destined to gather the whole creation back into communion with this generous, self-giving, gentle, humble God. Now this passage, Philippians 2, because of the astonishing glimpse that it gives us into the being of God, into the mind of the eternal Son prior to the incarnation. Because of that, the passage has been subject to a great deal of scrutiny and debate in the 20th century. I remember my New Testament professor at seminary gave, gave us this passage to work on as the first text that he wanted us to wrestle with. But what I want you to see is this. How the text functions here in Paul's argument is quite simple. It's not complicated. You don't have to go to seminary to figure this out. This emptying, this becoming nothing, this refusal to insist on one's right, this is the pattern for all Christian living. This is the indispensable prerequisite for deep unity in the church. And its absence... Right? Its absence is why so many churches and so many friendships fractured during the pandemic. 
to reiterate, we don't want to go this way. We're not really interested in this. To reiterate, Jesus is functioning as the pattern for the plea Paul made in those first four verses. You know, that plea for unity. Have the same mind. Have the same love. If there's any affection, if there's any encouragement. Jesus is the pattern. And if he is the pattern, that means that Palm Sunday is not just for Jesus. It's for you. It's for me. It requires of us an imitation of him who emptied himself. Who made himself nothing. Who did nothing from selfishness or conceit. Who considered our needs above his own needs. It's one thing, as I've said before, it's one thing to delight in Jesus substituting for us. Taking our place. It's another thing to recognize that in addition to that, he calls us into the mystery of the cross. And that forms a different kind of living. The road to riches and wealth and glory for us is the same road that it was for our Lord. It's the road of self-emptying poverty. And we ferociously resist this. It reminds me of Chesterton who said, the Christian life has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. Right, this, this right here, you'll find this difficult. And the tendency will be to just leave it untried then. But this is everything in Christian ethics. This is a, in the 19th century... At Princeton, there was a wonderful uh, Reformed theologian there named B.B. Warfield. Here's his beautiful description of his imitation of the humility of the eternal Son to which we are called. Warfield lived this out, by the way. I mean, he's a a world-renowned theological figure, but only people who know his biography know that he had a very, very ill wife for many, 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 many years. And Warfield would basically go to class at Princeton, teach, lecture, do a little writing care for his wife. So he says, this is Warfield, and he's referring to our passage. He says, Christ was led by his love for others into the world, to forget himself and the needs of others, to sacrifice self once for all upon the altar of sympathy. Sympathy is the missing ingredient here, right? This is not possible without sympathy, without emotionally and intellectually and volitionally getting into the skin of somebody else. Self-sacrifice, he continues, brought Christ into the world. And self-sacrifice will lead us, his followers, not away from, but into the midst of men. Wherever men suffer, there we will be to comfort. Wherever men strive, there we will be to help. Wherever men fail, there we will be to uplift. Wherever men succeed, there we will be to rejoice. Self-sacrifice means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despair. It means many-sidedness of spirit, multiform activity, multiplicity of sympathies. Only when, like Christ, and in loving obedience to his call and example, we take no account of ourselves, but freely give ourselves to others, we shall find, each in his measure, the saying true of himself also, therefore also God has highly exalted him. This is our path to exaltation as it was his. 
The path of self-sacrifice, the Palm Sunday path, is the path to unity. It's the path to glory. I charge you, imitate the humility of God. Amen.